0: Welcome back to Payroll and Thank you for joining me today. Today's episode, I am joined by Mr. Matt Morley from Pendleton Street Business Advisors. Matt is a dear friend and dare I say genius. He's one of the few people that I would use that term with, but I really believe it. And he helps companies when they're making make or break financial decisions. And that would typically be when they're trying to scale or looking to exit. And so he's seen a lot of different things around how owners accidentally devalue their business, how they increase the value of their business. And we had a great conversation around that and much more. I think you're really going to enjoy it. Please. Leave a five star. If you're enjoying this podcast, it helps us tremendously on your player of choice or just hit the follow button and also drop me a note and let me know if there's anything else you'd like to hear us talk about. We're trying to make this valuable to payroll bureau owners and leaders, and we really appreciate your listenership. Thanks and enjoy the show. Welcome to Payrollin' the show where you will learn how to operate and grow your payroll business from the most dynamic minds in the business. If your company offers payroll services, this is the podcast for you. And now here's your host, Matt Vady. Let's go. Are you tired of dealing with payroll? Would you just like to finally get out of this industry and start focusing on what you actually do best, whether you're a CPA, healthcare broker, whatever your core discipline is, you started offering payroll services because you thought it would be a great value add. And then you quickly realized, well, this is consuming way more time for not enough money than I originally thought. Did you know that we are actively acquiring Payroll Books of Business. We would love to work with you to identify if we can help you to partner with the right group that makes sense for an exit for you, but creates consistency in how you continue to treat your clients. If you're interested in learning more about Guru's acquisition services, simply go to guru.co forward slash acquisitions. That's G U H R O O dot co forward slash acquisitions. So you work with a lot of small business owners. You get an intimate view into their business. You see things that most of us don't want anybody else to see about our company. And one of the things that I think a lot of us are guilty of, and this happens in life in general, we sort of self-sabotage and we have these habits that we create that, whether it be, uh, you know, that extra snack that's compounding and causing us to put out weight or, you know, the habit that causes us to do things that maybe we didn't even realize were were having a negative impact on our life. What are some of the things that you see business owners doing that might be accidentally devaluing their business?
1: I think... One of the biggest things that I see is just a focus on growth at any cost. That's been less of an issue over the past year because of the pandemic, but heading into it and starting to see this now of, you know, growth does cost time, resources, money. A lot of times companies grow revenue at the expense of growing the value of their business. So let me give you like one example might be you have an opportunity to grow sales by 50%. By taking on one new client. Well, that'll be great for the time that that client is a client, but what happens when they when and if they leave? and do they fit with the strategic plan that you had for your business? So kind of that, you know, not to be too cliche, but that bright shiny object phenomenon. you know there's always going to be opportunities, but choosing which things not to do seems like a skill that has to be cultivated and uh, and worked on. For a lot of founders.
0: Yeah, that's interesting because it it kind of dovetails into something else I wanted to talk to you about today. And that's just this when do you know it's right to start offering additional services or going after additional verticals? I think in our space, in the payroll and HR space, it's you know, the the HCM, which I can't stand that acronym human capital management. It's become in vogue here over the last 10 years in the space, to probably 20 years, but you know, it, it gets really easy to go, okay, cool. Now we're going to add HR software and then we're going to add HR outsourcing and then we're going to add benefits and then we're going to add background checks and we're going to add recruiting and then we're going to add, and then where does it stop? Right. And so I think that's one of the things that it's a delicate balance because there are certainly, there's a, obviously some client demand that pushes us start out offering those additional services or perceived client demand sometimes, which is also a, a tricky rabbit hole to get into. But how do you know when it's right time to start adding services or or going after other verticals in your business?
1: That's a great question. And I, I don't know that I can answer that without really understanding the context of it. Don't mean that as a cop-out kind of answer, but every business is different and we view it through a lens of value. So what we would do is say, let's take the specifics of that situation, layer it on top of your business and say, is this going to grow value? Is the reward to risk ratio. In other words, the risk that it fails and the impact that it could have on your business, how many times more is the reward than that? Um, so if you say, well, you know, we think we could grow sales by 30%, but if we do this, we could actually and it fails, then we could lose you know, 10%. Well, then you've got a two times risk to reward ratio. That's just one way to think about a decision like that. But like I said, we'd really wanna layer in the details of, okay, let's see what resources this would take and what the potential payoff is to see whether it would add value to your business.
0: So a Pendleton Street business advisor is that while you guys aren't in our industry, obviously you've advised clients in our industry, my company included, uh, it, when you're looking at that internally, uh, you guys could go very wide, and you have a pretty niche offering, a couple of different niche offerings, uh, respectively. But but how do you evaluate that for your own business?
1: Again, I mean it's a great question, and even for us, it depends. I think we're pretty young business, young minded, at least still really want to be growing, and still really are growing, want to be growing faster. And the challenge is, you know, when you start something new. And really, this, Matt, this is more of a conversation between two business owners than it is uh, me giving anybody advice. But how far are you going to take something before you decide whether it works or not? You know, that would be my question mm. for you, but also for us internally is like, how long am I going to let this run before I move on? And I think that approach has been pretty helpful for us. And you can tell pretty quickly whether you're getting traction on something. I think the bigger challenge is cutting something loose that's not working because we all want to be right. We all want to be, we all want to believe that what we thought would be successful will be successful. So giving up on something that's not working is, is incredibly difficult. And then on the flip side of that, really being willing to dive in. If something is working, leaning into it hard can also be challenging because you want to kind of stage into things. But sometimes you just have to go full bore on it. I don't know if that was a helpful answer for your question, but that's kind of how we look at things.
0: So you touched on something in there that I think everybody listening here, everybody I talk to that listens to this show, and, and thank you to everybody listening, but they're all trying to grow, right? I don't know that there's going to be anybody listening in right now that's not trying to grow their company. And, you know, we have everything from an ADP sales rep listening right now all the way through to, you know, an owner of a 15, 20 location regional payroll company and kind of everybody in between on that journey. And they all have one thing in common. They're all trying to grow their book of business. They're all trying to grow their value in the market. And so... In the professional services world, that's more challenging. Once again, most of the people listening don't own their software. They don't have a sort of proprietary method for scale, right, so scale typically associated with things that aren't linear. Think software as a service with a much smaller S on service than most of us have in the payroll world. I always say you know payroll is kind of like SaaS with a really big S on the service. It's basically tech enabled service for lack of a better term. But when we look at growing professional Service-based businesses, which is really what this is. What have you seen that works and is it possible to
1: scale? I believe it is possible to scale, but just I think I'll go back to something you touched on, which is something that I think gets lost in the discussion of scaling. There is a huge difference between growth and scale. And in order to scale, you have to grow, but just because you're growing doesn't mean you're scaling. And let me let me make that less confusing because I realize coming out that sounds pretty (laughs) confusing. If I grow And this goes back to the cost of growth thing that that we were talking about earlier, too. If I grow my revenue, in what proportion are my expenses growing also? And that's the biggest challenge for service companies. If I think about growing or scaling a manufacturing business or scaling a software company, they are scalable because you can, let's say I have a machine in the factory, it can run a certain number of hours every week, that's it. Actually, the ideal situation would be your expenses don't have to grow at all if you're going to grow revenue. But I think a lot of business owners think scale equals growth, and that's just not the case. So we really want to focus on every decision we're making to grow. Is there a component of scalability in that? So scalability really means separating in those terms to me would mean take any individual out of the equation and the process still works. And also, I guess that would be the primary thing. And that's actually one of the biggest risks that we see in small businesses, especially in the service sector is who, what would happen if the founder and occasionally other key people like salespeople, what would happen if they were not in the business anymore? Like if they got hit by a bus, Or if they decided they didn't want to work there anymore, what would happen to the business? And if you were no longer able to grow or no longer able to service your clients, to us looking at it as as outsiders, that would be a significant risk that would prevent scaling. So finding a way to take all of the things, and we call it institutional knowledge. It's kind of an old term, but we still use it a lot. Take that institutional knowledge that's inside people's heads. And the first step would be standardize that as procedures. and then. The new wave, which is not so new anymore, but but the next wave that's really in full bore right now is take those procedures and see how much of that you can automate with software.
0: Yeah, automation and outsourcing seem to be the hot topics right now as it relates to entrepreneurship in general. It, it's funny because back when I started doing this in 2008, yes, back when there was dinosaurs that roamed the earth, uh, there if we would have said outsourcing to somebody when we were trying to sell them payroll services, that was like a dirty word. Like you didn't bring up outsourcing. You actually stayed away from it because it had this negative connotation. Like people were going to lose their jobs and it felt like you were offshoring it to India. And it just, it was just a very different environment where I feel like if you approach me today and you say that you can outsource something for me and it's a critical part of our business and you can do it as well or better than we're currently doing it, I'm all years. Right. And I feel like the, the, the whole atmosphere around that has changed. Uh, uh, but, but you bring up a good point though. I think when you talk about systemization and, and process, uh, processes, another thing that's very hot right now. And, and for me personally, you read books like built to sell, I think built to sell is a great book to, to just a good thought exercise. I don't know how strictly to follow some of the sort of, uh, the, the theme of that, but it looks like the e-myth, uh, as well, where they talk about building a franchise prototype it, when have you seen those types of things executed really well? So people that built out great processes and and built out that sort of franchise prototype and build it to sell, even if they're not going to sell. And what are some things you see people kind of missing, even when they're attempting to do that?
1: That's a great question. Um, I think the ones that I've seen work really well did a couple of things. One is they leaned a lot on outside experts and advisors When when they knew that they needed to take something from incubation phase to scale this process and really take it out to market and and do it, they they were not shy about bringing outside experts and advisors in to make sure that when they hit the ground running, you know, there's not a wheel falling off or, or something like that. So getting it set up right. You know, not not dragging in terms of timing, not letting that not letting that keep them from moving forward on things, but just doing like intentionally moving forward in a way that says, I want to build this so it works now. But I also want to build it so it's not breaking in two months. Um, You know, that's probably the biggest aspect there.
0: Going back to your your prior comment about you know, we, we obviously are all always worried about the bus factor. Right. And, you know, I think about some of our, some of the folks I know that own payroll companies that are, you know, might have a couple hundred clients and just made their first hire. Like they've just been a, you know, just providing payroll only and doing it themselves for years and and are just finally pulling the trigger and, and getting some administrative hands in there to help them out, whether it be payroll or just, just the glue sort of thing. And then, you know, obviously, like I said, we got folks with uh, hundreds of employees listening to this as well. And is there like this inflection point? Because as I look around my team right now, like there's still a lot of institutional knowledge that's stuck with me. And I, I continue to try to shed as much of that as possible month over month, year over year. And then it goes into these other individual roles, which are now you know, I don't want to say it's replaceable, but in reality, somebody told me something when I was very young, my first management job, a guy told me I was taking it a little too seriously. He said, Matt, if you get hit by a bus tomorrow, they'll replace you with somebody else and the world will keep spinning. And, and that's just kind of the nature of the beast. Once a company's up and running, like, yes, there is time the, that it takes for the next person to get into the role, but inevitably the next person will come and they will take your job and they will do your job as well, if not better than you. And so... When is there any inflection point from a headcount perspective or a maturity perspective where you start to see less reliance on ownership and more ability to spread that out or less reliance on key players? What are some commonalities there?
1: I'm not sure that there's a critical mass. I think she's got really large companies out there that still have a person at the center that if they were removed, it would hurt for a long time Um, from a shareholder perspective and just from an operational perspective. there's examples where companies have overcome that. Like I would think, you know, Apple, when when Steve Jobs died, having Tim Cook in there, he's still there. He's doing a great job. They don't have the pizzazz that they had before Steve Jobs died, but they're still an amazing company to own and, and I would guess to work for. But I'm not sure that to answer your question, I'm not sure there is a critical mass. I just think having an intentional focus on doing that over time is what, is what's really going to serve you best, and you know you'll. I think one of the things about Built to sell that was so that book was so um, impactful for me was it really brought home this idea of if if you create a business that is good to own as an outside shareholder or good to buy, you're probably going to want to hold on to it because you'll be less involved in it. So mm-hmm. if that's one of your goals, transferring this institutional knowledge down to the rest of the organization so that it can be passed along to whoever needs to be trained or um, hired or, or whatever. You know, that To me, that would be a top priority if you want to get to the point where you can actually have an option to sell your business.
0: Yeah, it's kind of funny. It, all the things that are going to drive the value of your business up are all the same things that are probably going to make it more tolerable to stay in your business or not, not tolerable. That's, uh, that comes off a little uh, wrong, but but make it more enjoyable to own and run your business. Right. Cause it does, a professional service business is such a grind to get it to—I don't want to say scale, but to, to get it grown—is such a grind. But once you you know reach that certain inflection point, it's like, well, this is actually—you know—I've I've got more of a lifestyle business if that's what I'm going for. I certainly can create that. But I think you hit know, on a really good point. You've got to be really intentional about it, which kind of brings me into—I know one of the things—and in and full disclosure, Matt's a client of ours. I've been a client of his. One of the things, a couple of projects, Matt is Matt and his firm have helped us with. With. one was evaluating acquisitions. So determining the, you know, whether or not a deal is a good deal for for both us and the company we're trying to acquire, uh, but also trying to increase the value of our own company and looking at some of the the triggers and and levers that we can pull that'll help us to increase the value. So what are some of those things when you look at a company and say, okay, hey, here's some of the things that are going to be valued by potential acquirers if you ever look to sell?
1: Definitely. I, I think, I mean, Matt, you know this, but you're Your uh, listeners probably do not. I'm a big numbers guy. So I focus a lot on the numbers. And one of the things that I think is a great indicator of whether a business is transferable or not is, does the business owner know their own numbers? Does the current founder know their own numbers? And are they meaningful indicators of value? So for example, if all you're tracking is sales. KPIs. That says a lot about your company and the focus of your company. As opposed to if all you're tracking is solvency and liquidity or cash and current ratio and all that kind of liquidity and solvency stuff, that also says something. I'd say on the first one that's totally sales focused, that's growth. So it needs to be treated like a growth kind of investment. On the other one, that would scream to me. Lifestyle business, if someone's just totally focused on the cash and the risk side of their business as opposed to growing it. So, I guess the first thing would be know your numbers and then figure out do the numbers you're tracking align with what will actually grow the value of your business? I think one of the cool things about your industry is, well, actually, I'll say two or three things that I think are cool about your industry and what I know about it. One is there's a lot of recurring revenue which acquirers love. Think about buying a payroll business versus, let's say, a construction business that does six to nine month projects, maybe 10 a year. All right. I'd much rather have the one that I've got clients that have a contractual obligation to pay me on an ongoing basis rather than having to basically go hunting all the time for new projects that are going to end and be over. And you're just constantly having to re- replace, just replace your pipeline. Whereas with a company like a payroll services company, you're adding on top of a client base every time. I mean, you should be every time you add a new client. So that's a very attractive element of payroll services. Another is there's very low working capital. I mean, for for most, and I can't speak for all these companies because I I haven't seen them all, but from what I understand, most work is uh, you're taking the cash out of the client's account rather than them having to cut you a check, which sounds like a small thing. But in a time like we had in March and April and May, that could have made the difference between a payroll company surviving or not surviving. If you got paid immediately when you earned that money versus getting paid 30 to 60. And in a few cases, never, uh, or, or like years maybe of getting paid if you had to issue invoices and then get a check back. So like those little things that people maybe don't really put much value on, I think acquirers look at that a lot differently and say, is this a business that has, Back again to the risk reward kind of component is the risk. How much greater is the return than the risk I'm taking in buying this business? So in general, I think payroll services has some compelling um, components to it, which and I'm going a little far now, but which is why you see the kind of which is why I believe people talk about payroll services companies as the value of payroll services companies as a multiple of revenue versus like that manufacturing company or you know convenience store that might be measured as a multiple of EBITDA which is a profit number but because what's being valued is that recurring revenue a lot of times you will see value being quoted as a revenue multiple rather than a profit multiple
0: yeah that's right and I was going to get into that I'm, I'm often surprised with uh, I'm very blessed and fortunate to speak to I don't know five to ten payroll company owners every single week through guru just from our current clients at Guru whether, or people that are interested in looking at it. And I'm shocked how many of them have no sort of purview of the landscape of potential acquisition. And so I'm going to break down a little bit of what I know, and I'm no expert on this by any stretch, but a couple of things. So, So if you're going like, like Matt just mentioned in the more traditional acquisition environment where you're just going to go out and find someone or somebody who, or some entity that wants to acquire your business. Yeah. They're probably going to look more at EBITDA and they're probably going to evaluate the profitability, the systems, the team, you know, the normal acquisition due diligence process. And and I know Matt, one of the exercises we went through kind of followed some of that more traditional where we're looking at risk decentralization. Like, do we have too much of a percentage of our business? tied up in a particular customer and or a vertical or what have you, and I'd love for you to share some of those and how they, they may impact valuation. But then in our space, you do have these big players, the big national firms that will just straight up buy your book of business for a uh, multiplier of revenue. And they don't care if your book of business is profitable. Now I, I say they don't care, they're gonna look at all of that. But at the end of the day, all they want are your 500 clients and they wanna make sure that your pricing model fits, that's more what they're concerned about is, hey, can we get the same top line that we're getting today because they're gonna put it into the machine and they're gonna get the bottom line either way. So they don't care if you can't be profitable because they know they can be profitable, but then they're mostly gonna also be concerned with retention of those clients. So a lot of these deals are structured. Hey, after 90 days, we're gonna pay you on the clients that made the transition and we're gonna pay you X number percentage of uh, X multiplier on top line, uh, typically in a one to three X multiplier range, depending on the size of your book of business. But if you go with a And this is where the devil is really sort of, I don't even want to say in the details, this is where it gets very challenging for us as the folks that have been out here pitching for years, like don't go with the nationals, don't go with the nationals, don't go with the nationals. Well, I'm going to be real with you here. They're going to pay the highest multiplier on revenue for you. So when it comes time to exit, you're going to have a big life decision to say, all right, did for the last 15 years, did I just rail against ADP and paychecks only to then sell to them because they're going to give me a three X multiplier versus a traditional acquisitions only going to give me a one X multiplier. So you're going to, you're going to be forced with, and I've watched some people have to make this decision and they've just said, Hey, look, I don't care. Like I'm not going to go against everything I've preached for the last 20 years, just to, to make an extra X on the multiplication, which it's a hard dang decision to make y'all. So um, it, a lot to, to, to get into there, but that those are just some things to consider is, am I growing a book to sell to a potential large na- national acquirer, or am I growing a business business to sell to a possible strategic acquisition. I think about maybe a benefits, large regional benefits agency that wants to add payroll and HR services to their book of business or a CPA firm that's large same sort of situation, you know, or a multitude of other folks that are trying to break into this vertical to complement their existing products set. Um, But yeah, with that said, Matt, share with me a little bit about some of the things that your thoughts on what I just shared and also some of the things related to, um, you know, how to sort of de-risk if we're going the more traditional sale route.
1: Yeah, sure. I mean, I, I think in general, what you just said is accurate, but I will say, you know, we've helped a fair amount of our clients exit their businesses and a lot of them were in really kind of obscure industries, like they were in a sector that everybody understands, but they're in a part of the industry that we're like, Oh, I didn't even know that existed. Really. What we found is that if you're growing your, your business's value intentionally by addressing risk and opportunities that can, that can add value. If you're doing that A lot of times a buyer you never expected will come around. And if you know what you're talking about, which is multiples are higher if I just saw my book, if you know that, that has to be part of the conversation with that acquirer. And more times than not, honestly, what we see is if it's the right buyer, they rise to that challenge and they will they will pay what they need to to make the deal happen. Because as much as it's worth the ADP, for smaller companies, it may be worth even more if what you're doing differently allows them to compete with those guys even, you know, even more effectively. So I just throw that out there. That like, don't give up hope. If you're building a unique business model that generates, you know, unique value creation, don't give up on that to get a higher multiple. Like whether it's us or some other firm, like engage with advisors that can help you position that with potential acquirers in a way that will get you paid for that value that you're creating.
0: That's a great point. And I think you just hit on something there, sort of sideswiped it at the end, where engage with advisors. You mentioned it earlier, we were talking about it recently, you and I both recently read the book, Who Not How, and there's a chapter in there around how much time and energy they suggest and, and sort of lean on I don't want to say high price, but some varying in costs of you know outside advisement, experts, consultants, outsourcing, all the things we started talking about earlier. But I remember when we first engaged with you to look at an acquisition and I, after the first call, it was an hour long call. And I said, I turned around to, to my wife, Kate afterwards. And I said that, that right there was worth every penny that we're going to pay for this full month of their services, because they're seeing around corners. They know things that we just don't know. And like that, you know, whatever that number of dollars was, was immediately recouped based on the knowledge that was transferred to me that I never would have thought of that information without talking to you or someone like you. And so I think it's really important. And it's hard in the early days, I know, because many of us start these companies, we're bootstrapping, we don't have cash to go lean on advisors or outsource everything we can. But it's also like the amount of money, time, energy, it can save you in the long run to actually lean on people that have been down this road once before is so, so critical. Agreed. Let me ask you a question. Are you the go-to person in your market for payroll and HR? Are you the first face and name somebody thinks of when they think about who am I going to refer this person that needs help with their payroll and HR support? If not, you might wanna look into our executive LinkedIn management service through Underdog Digital. Underdog Digital is a sponsor of this show, and they've seen results such as I'm looking at one profile right here, where over the course of six months, they increased views by over 200%, more than 600,000 views on these posts in in less than six months. Uh, Another one, a plus 1,000% increase in eight new conversations in the first 30 days. This is a tremendous service to help you to become the go to person for uh, payroll and HR outsourcing in your market. They create content for you, engage with other people in your space, send connection requests, and do outreach to generate conversations that do nothing more than create valuable relationships with your target audience. If you're interested in learning more about Underdog Digital's executive LinkedIn management service, go to underdogdigital.co. That's underdogdigital.co. So let's uh, on that end, when we talk about uh, the valuation piece, and and I'll just say, you know, for, for many of you out there, and this is a piece of advice, golly, I've given maybe every episode, maybe uh, a thousand times over the last six months and, and a thousand times over the next six months. And, you know, there's an old sort of adage, the riches are in the niches. And the, one of the many reasons why people in our industry don't, niche down is because of the FOMO, right? So it's like, if I'm gonna be dentistpayroll.com, then all I'm worried about are all the other industries that I can't serve instead of focusing on the fact that, dang it, I'm gonna be the best darn payroll company for dentists in America. And then when it comes exit point, guess what that also opens up? A bunch of really niche acquisition opportunities where I'm gonna be the premier player in that space. And in reality, I've given myself a much higher leverage for growth versus just focusing on anything and everything, which so many of us do. And I'm so guilty of our one of our biggest mistakes early on was just going Way too wide with our service offering too early. Uh, like we we've actually scaled back our services over the years. Believe it or not, as as wide as we continue to be. Um, so, so, what are some of your thoughts around that? Around hey, what are some of the unique niche plays that you've seen people work through and and examples of that that you've seen in the market?
1: I think that one example of niche is like what industry vertical you're going to serve. Another really valid example of niche that I don't think it's talked about enough is your target client, like their actual demographic and like the characteristics of them. Because I think what you, what you'll find is, and Matt, I think you're one of the first people that helped us do this for our, when we were doing like job searches, um, you know, you, you asked us like, well, who, who is this person? When you think about this person, what, who are they? we also started thinking about our our clients in that way. And we just realized like for our firm, we don't need to focus on specific industries. There's already so few of the type of clients that we believe we can really add value and are open to the kind of advice that we give that like we need to be focusing on finding those people, whether they're in, you know, whether they're dentists or backhoe operators that somehow now own a fleet of backhoes I mean you don't know like that's what we're focused on is that niche and I think I think that that is another example of that leaning in like leaning in is a good strategy if something is working you know lean into it keep an eye on it make sure that it's make sure it's not falling apart or anything but I think that's one of the things that uh And maybe I'm just speaking about myself. I don't know. Maybe other people don't feel this way. But even if something is kind of working, I probably wait too long to really, really take resources and and put it into that thing. So I think that would be, yeah to answer your question.
0: Yeah. And I think i I've got some more thoughts on that. Shocker. You know, I, I go back all the way to when I was carrying a bag when I was in sales. And one of the things I would do is I would, I would work up a little spreadsheet by, by industry and of like, so, all right. So for, I'm calling on restaurants, I want five restaurant clients on my spreadsheet that I can look at that way. When I'm calling a, a restaurant, I go, Hey, Mr. Restaurant owner, we work with ABC restaurant and XYZ restaurant right up around the corner from you. And here are some of the, unique challenges we solve for them. And when you can do that and you can speak to whether, like you said, it doesn't have to be an industry per se, but it can be a a prototype, a person and a persona. um, Then you're just speaking directly to them. Right. I always tell people like, if you call my office right now and you say, Hey, we provide, you know, XYZ service for payroll and HR companies. Like I'm immediately listening, and I've looked at some really bad marketing and really bad pitches just because they're focused on our industry, and I feel like they know me better than someone else. And so there's a lot to be said for that. And and you get there, you, you kind of alluded to it. We we took the the normal buyer persona and we twisted it on its side on our HR side of the house. And we said, "What's your employee persona? Like what what have you actually had success with in the past?" And I remember this exercise very well because uh, you and and your partner John, I remember we, we kind of, you started with this one, like, Hey, this is the type of person that's going to be successful in this role. And then when we really broke it down, it was a completely different person who, who was going to be successful in that role. And so we were able to then shift our focus on, all right, where are we looking for this person? Cause they're, we don't find those two people in the same place and same with our prospects or potential clients. Like, you know, if you really, if we really understand them and it doesn't have to be the industry, it can be the, the type of person stage of career, the, you know, the problems that they have, whatever that, that commonality, is is, then we can speak directly to them. But more importantly, then we can find them. And so that's, that's kind of step one, right? Is like, where the heck are they?
1: Yeah. yeah. So, well, I think there's also an element of like, whatever you're going for, whatever your target is for your business in terms of like your ideal clients, whether it happens to be an industry or a specific type of, of you know, demographic or whatever. Another key point to remember is like, that's your message. And, and I don't want to I don't mean to step on the toes of any marketing folks uh, or anything like that. But like what you go out to bring in doesn't have to be the same thing as what you you take if it just comes in. Like what we'll find a lot of times is we're going after a specific niche, but our business has basically two sides. There's business advisory and then there's investment management. Sometimes we get referrals just to manage people's portfolios that's part of what we do. And we'll do that. Now, are we going out and selling that as a service that we provide to try and bring that in on its own? No, because our strategic focus is on helping business owners deal with major transitions in their businesses so that they can have peace of mind about it. But we already have the systems and processes built to manage portfolios. So we'll still, we'll still a lot of times take that if it comes in. So I think that's another element here is like, Let's separate, even if they're the same, let's just separate the idea of what our messaging is in terms of our ideal target client versus what our business is actually doing every day. We can still do different things. There's actually a firm, you know, close to to our neighborhood that they market specifically to dental firms, but that's not their only clients. It's just, that's what their website, it seems to be pretty successful for them. What do you think about that kind of delineating, thinking about things that way?
0: I think it's a really good point. And and what it brings me to as you're as you're speaking about that is like, I have a tendency wrongly to, to be too focused on, you know, like we mentioned, I've read all these books. I've, I've sort of thought about my business as an investment from day one. And like, you know, how am I going to grow the value of this investment? I mean, I did put a lot of my own capital into it. So I think that's a proper way to think about it, but unfortunately that will sometimes get you more exit focused than you want to be. I have no intent of exiting in the very near future, but what I am always looking at is going, all right, if I look at my PL and I look at all the services that are uh, we're selling and that revenues coming in, if somebody came in here and looked to acquire this, what would they carve out of there? And, and, you know, devalue and just go, yeah, we don't want those lines of business. And so that would, that definitely changes based on who's going to acquire, but it's also so a good way to think about what you just said is like, all right, if they're going to call in with that, does it fit into one of those bucket buckets that's going to, increase the value of our business? Or is it a distraction, uh, which is something that we've had trouble with over the year where it's like, this is nice revenue. and We're going to earn some money on it right now, which don't get me wrong. Some of y'all are starting out. and I know you're doing consulting for half of your time and you're selling payroll and HR services the other half the time. And you got to do what you got to do to keep the cash coming in. Totally get it. Been there, done that. But at the same time, like there comes an inflection point where we have to say, okay, this stuff is actually devaluing our business because it's distracting us from the stuff that we do really well. And that's, if you ever read built to cell, I think it's probably one of the best examples and, and definitely one I need to read again right now And to sort of boil the story down. Basically, it's the story of this guy that owns a marketing agency that does everything under the sun, advertising and marketing, every everything you could think of. And then finally they systematize the whole thing and just decide they're gonna only make logos. And they're just going to be the best darn logo design shop that there is it's the only type of business they're going to take they're going to have a perfect you know they're going to know exactly who their potential customers are going to do it over and over again they got repeatable processes that they can leverage to grow. And you know, while they take a dip initially they eventually grow and it's a you know kumbaya story at the end as you'd expect so. All that being said, yes, I, I am tend to be a little bit too focused on sometimes where this stuff fits long term. But I mean, there are definitely projects that come up that you're like, man, this just be some good cash flow. We just heard about that recently. We had a client or a, a rather large local company that reached out to us and they know we do managed payroll, which is pretty unique. Like we do a fully outsourced payroll offering, but they wanted us to do it on their platform and not ours. And so they said, you know, and it still would have been great revenue. I mean, it still would have been three to five to uh, to six, seven grand a month. I don't know where we would price it at, but it, was a bi- it would have been a big deal that that would have just been pure labor costs. And so we would have had margins built in there. It would have been a nice little deal. But at the end of the day, we just had to pull back and go, is this even like, is this on? on par with where we're trying to go at all. And, and as hard as it was, I had to turn on and go, no, I'm sorry. Like we can't do this. It's just not where we're going or what we do. So uh, you've got to know when to say no. And I think for us too, there were also industries for a long time that we wouldn't work with. We, to your point, we'd never call a restaurant. We'd never call a construction company when enough restaurants started calling in, we would start talking to them and determine, you know, the, like, is this owner savvy enough to actually get online and do the stuff himself? Or are we going to spend all of our time holding his hand and getting yelled at by him because he doesn't, you know, understand the technology and expects us to do everything for him. And so just understanding like, okay, Hey, even though we don't like that vertical, you know, it's not necessarily, doesn't mean we're not going to take any clients in. It's just got to be the right clients.
1: Right. That gets back to that whole discussion of niche. of What, are, what is your real niche? You know, it's not necessarily somebody that's in that industry or, or you know, not in, you know, the restaurant industry. It's got to be the right client. And I think that also points to a really major difficulty with professional services firms because it's relationship based. And sometimes the right client is the one that you get along with or the one that works well with you. And so how do you make that transferable? You know, that's something that if you can crack that nut in your business, then you'll have found a way to make it make a professional services firm transferable that probably no one has yet except for through software, basically. But yeah, that's a really great observation.
0: Well, and I think that this all comes down to decision-making. I remember when we first started, and I apologize for those of you listening that I've told this story before, but there was a local entrepreneur, a good-sized company. They've got 50-plus employees. They were one of our first clients. We went out and sold them, and you know, they asked at the end of the sales process, so how many clients do you guys have? And I had to say Five we have five. And you know we were up against ADP and paychecks. We we're talking about their 700,000 clients and whatever it is. And I've, I've got to roll out the five swap for them. So they signed, they took a flyer on us. We basically told them all the ways that we would protect them from any risk. Even if our business went under in six months, what would we do to make it so that it would not be disruptive to their business? And they appreciated that. And they went with us and it's been, I guess, probably six years they've been with us since. But I remember seeing the owner about six months after we closed the deal. And he, he said to me, he said, Matt, how are things been going? I know you guys pretty early stage, like, how's the business been going? I said, well, Sean, it's so hard because there's no right or wrong answers. Like there's a million different ways to do everything when you own a business. Like there's no playbook and, and there's just so many decisions to make. It can be overwhelming. And he said, oh, you're wrong. He said, there's a million right answers. You just need to pick one and run with it. And that has stuck with me and guided me ever since such a simple throwaway line by him over coffee that to me has like guided a lot of what I've done over the last five or six years. But another thing that's helped me a lot has been some of the exercises you and I went through as far as decision-making frameworks and and talk to me a bit. And I know some of this is unique to the individual. And then we've kind of got situations lining one side of the grid versus the other, but talk to me about your basic concepts and how you think about helping others make decisions as it relates to their business.
1: I'm glad you brought that tool up. It's kind of it's a tool that we've created to help really understand are your behaviors aligned with what you say you want, you know, which seems so simple. But what we found is like, first of all, for business owners, for founders of businesses, there's not a lot of people you can talk through what you're working on and what you want that will, A, understand where you're coming from and B, not be thinking about, okay, how do I get a piece of this as they're talking to you about it? So having a framework to put everything that's going on and that you're thinking about everything that's going on in your business against what are your long-term objectives we found to be really valuable. So and I can send an example version of this if you want to put it in your in your notes or anything that, that doesn't have any client information on it. But basically what you would do is on the top row you would put what are my kind of long term objectives for the business. But then also there's got to be a personal component of it. for for founders and business owners. There's gotta be a personal component of like, why am I doing this to get where, you know? So having that on the top row and then on the left, take all these opportunities that you're considering and make a row for each of them. And then say, all right, on a scale from one to five, let's just take that first row of opportunity how many of these, like, what would I say is the ranking against each of my long-term objectives? So if I have a long-term objective of exiting my business for $1 billion, if your objective was to sell your business for $10 billion in 10 years, you know, let's say the first opportunity is we're going to start a line of, you know, Beanie babe, ERG Beanie Babies so that we can also sell a line of uh, NFTs off that or something, you know. That has nothing to do with selling your business for $10 billion in five years. So you'd put a rank of zero on that. And if you will fill that whole thing out for all of the kind of things that you're considering and all the things you're working on, the big kind of initiatives that you're working on, you'll start to see patterns emerge. And what you want to find is on balance, is my behavior aligned with what I'm saying I really want? Because if it's not, either I need to change my behavior or I need to really spend time figuring out what it is I actually want. That's so
0: awesome. And I think for me, I mean, that, that statement you said, once again, one of these just simple but profound statements, are your behaviors aligned with what you want? And sometimes we don't really know what we want, right? Like I know I'm always walking this fine line of like, I want a lifestyle business that you know, is going to afford me the time and income that I want to have this life where I can spend as much time with my family as I want. And I'm not behooving to investors and all that, but I also want to grow and scale. And like those things don't come together. Most times, right? So we've got to figure out where's the balance there and what does that look like for us? And it's not the same for everybody, but golly, if your, your actions aren't aligned with what you want to be or what you want from your life and from your business, the, then you'll never get there. The, you know, Like we say, the old cliche every time, if you have no target, you'll hit it every single time. But that was a really powerful yep. program for me. Uh, so we went through a 12-week program with you called Founder Planning. And that was the thing I love most about it. It was right there, that connection between my personal life in our company uh, because they're not independent if you're a founder, right? They're, they're sort of one in the same. And like, is the business serving your personal goals and vice versa? Talk to me a little bit about that program and some of the other things you guys do over at Pendleton street. I know we've talked about several things throughout the course of the conversation.
1: So founder planning is really a, I mean, Matt, you, you covered it. It's a, it's a 12 week process. Only thing I would add is the whole thing is meant to answer three questions in those 12 weeks. And it's kind of, it's evolving too, because we started it. So let me say what it is, what those questions are. And then I'll kind of get into a little bit of the context. Question is, how much is your business worth? Number one, two, how much do you need your business to be worth? And then three, how do we get it there? So by the end of that process, we're sending a report and we're having a final meeting to talk about the answers to those three questions. So hopefully people go away from the process with a good action plan. The way that started was we have traditionally worked with business owners on the exit side of their journey. So they're probably two or three years away from exiting their business. We would help them prepare, you know, personally and in their business to exit it and then help walk them through the process of exiting, whether that's a transition, to management or, you know, the next generation, or it's selling to an outside financial or strategic uh, buyer, any of those situations. And they kept saying the same things as we're debriefing their exits two or three months after they're done. And that kind of deal haze has lifted and they're able to kind of experience some relief of a successful exit. We kept hearing one thing over and over again, over and over again man, if I had only known this, or if I had only known that, and so it took us probably longer than it should have for the light bulb to click and say, okay, there are thousands of versions of this client 30 years ago, all around us, we need to be helping them. So we started Founder Planning to take those lessons that we've learned through all those exits, and apply it to a business that's closer to when they actually started the business.
0: That's awesome. And I think it goes back to a topic that's been kind of, it comes up in some way, shape or form in every episode, I feel like, and that's, you know, that who, not how, I'm like leaning on you've gone through and seen all those exits and seen all of those founders reactions and what they did to prepare good and bad and indifferent. And like, we just haven't. And so why would I try to figure this out on my own when for a few bucks, I can get all your experience and all that information boiled down and just hand delivered to me. And I, like I said, I I got immense value from it. And I think that's, uh, because that's the other point too, as you're talking, I was thinking about like the value when we own a business isn't just about dollars, right? Like especially when you're a founder, like your lifestyle and what this means for your family and possible for some of us, you know, multi-generational businesses like value goes beyond how much money you're going to sell for, or how much money you make each month. So I, I really enjoyed the way the framework helped me think about the the whole picture instead of just, you know, the P and L.
1: Well, I, I appreciate that. And, uh, and you know, this about me, Matt, I, I am, I'm horrible at commercials. So, This isn't me trying to sell that process. We just really love taking business owners through it because like that, that whole, man, if I had only known this or gosh, I just wish I would have known that, you know, that aspect of it. I've seen that play out in, you know, a lot of businesses now that we've been taking through it of like, there's just aha moments that are pretty simple, but they wouldn't have gotten there for a really long time if they weren't going through that framework to be thinking about things in that way. So yeah, we're, we're excited about it. That's awesome, man.
0: Well, I appreciate you taking some time today to share some of your genius with With myself and the others listening in, uh, and and I mean that. I think uh, that's a question I've been wanting to ask you when we talk recently, because uh, somebody called me a genius once in my life, and and I will never forget that person. They were they were, you know, it it was certainly not all that sincere, I would imagine. But I know that that is something that people call you all the time. Like it's just a very common thing for people to be like, oh, that Morley, I love that guy, he's a genius. And so, how do you not let that go to your head, Matt? Is my only question for you.
1: Man, how do I answer that question without it sounding like it's gone in my head? (laughs) I, I don't think I'm a genius. I just have spent a long time thinking and learning about things that, you know, most people don't have the time to think and learn about because it's my job. So I think it's more just like I just keep learning more and more about this space and figuring out ways to apply it. I appreciate when people say that and I don't want to discount what they're saying, but I do disagree. So it's constant uh, learning process. I, 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 you do that too. And as much as you joke about um that, I mean, Matt, if you've authored a book, I think you're automatically a genius. So you're a genius.
0: <laughs> I wrote a book, not a good book, but a book, Matt. <laughs> and I think, yeah, no, it, I think it's great. Well, and I think that's a pretty common phrase. Well, it might be better now after I might do a whole nother episode on trusting editors after we just republished the book because we found how many grammatical errors there were after three editors poured over it, which was super embarrassing, but also just like another one of those, be careful which experts you trust, I guess. Like now that's the other side of this coin of like, have they actually walked the walk? There's a lot of folks out there doing coaching and all this stuff nowadays that haven't actually done what you're trying to do. So find the people that have, you know, and once again, do they have to be somebody that's watched 700 payroll exits yeah, that's fine. But like, have they been somebody that's seen 700 exits or, you know, what a 70 exits or whatever it is like, yeah, I like that too, because then I get a different purview. So but yes. And I, I like, I sincerely mean that. I, I think you're, you're one of uh, only two people I can think of in my network that people consistently say when they're not in the room is a genius. And so that's uh, definitely pretty darn cool. And I'm, I'm, grateful that you would let somebody like me tap into that genius every now and then. And, and i leave you with my new thing that I've realized about me is that I'm dumb, but willing. Uh, and that's the important part is being willing. And so, <laughs> all right, well, we'll link out to yeah. everything we referenced today in the show notes. Any parting thoughts for our, the folks listening in?
1: As we were talking, I opened up this tool that we have that I call it the transferability score. It's not a very sexy name, obviously, but what it does is it breaks down all the kind of risk and return components that we've been talking about into five categories and allows you to score those based on your own answers. It's just a short questionnaire and then you get a report from it. So I'll send that to you. And if any of your listeners would like to do that, we're happy to help with that. Awesome. Love it. Thank you, brother. I appreciate your time so much. All right. Thank you.
0: If you enjoyed that episode, please share it with someone else you know who might enjoy it and learn from this. And also, please rate us five stars on your favorite podcast player. We really appreciate you taking the time to listen and also don't hesitate to reach out with other topics you'd like to hear more about. Thanks so much.